David Ian Howe, thanks so much for coming on to Talk Beliefs. You are an archaeologist based in Georgia, United States, and your speciality is ethnocynology, which is the study of wolves and dogs in human cultural contexts. But before we start, can you just give us a brief overview about you and how you got into this pretty amazing subject? Yeah, actually. So I, as a kid, I always loved history and evolution. Um, and I, I originally went to school for history and ended up like, kind of being oh man what do i do now and then i took an anthropology class and i was like wow here's history prehistory evolution all in one class and i took that um and then ended up getting my master's in it in archaeology uh or i guess my master's is in anthropology as well it's four field subject Mm -hmm. um and in grad school i kind of got really fascinated by um a couple articles i'd read about dog burials and human canine connection in the past and I thought it was super fascinating and I just started looking into it and it's not um, a widely studied thing. I mean, people love ceramics, people love like bones, things like that. But um, the history of the dog and humanity hasn't really been touched on by many archaeologists. So um, I decided to start, yeah, uh, start looking into it, compiling some research. And um, yeah, I started that Instagram um, at ethnocynology and I found out that that's a, that's a word. (laughs) So I looked into that um, and yeah, I just like promoting research on that and um, currently working with Ted Ed. Uh, they're producing a video. It should be out soon. Um, on that's that. right. That's the history of dogs, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. David, can you elaborate on the word ethnocynology, which is it's not a word you hear that often. Um, how exactly would you define it? So it's a neologism or neo, yeah, neologism founded by a Canadian archaeologist or anthropologist by the name of Brian Cummings. Um, and it's just ethno meaning like people and then sinology being the study of dogs and it's the study of dogs in human cultural contexts. And I had always assumed like anthro canid apology or anthro lupine apology, something weird. Yeah. And I'd proposed it in a paper or two, but then I stumbled upon that word and I was like, that's perfect. Cause we have like ethnography or ethno history and then ethno sinology, the study of people and dogs, I think is pretty Cool. I'd like to put that more into like the world lexicon, if as it were. I think everyone knows that dogs were domesticated from wolves like thousands of years ago. But how do we think that that happened, and how long ago did this all start? Yeah, uh, there's tons of theories on that. Uh, history of dogs and humans goes back uh, quite a while. Um, it's the first domesticated animal that humans had um, or encountered, and there's many working hypotheses on how it happened. Uh, but the leading hypothesis that I subscribe to is that we are just a very similar species ecologically. Um, when humans first entered Eurasia, uh, wolves were already there for thousands mm-hmm. of years um, and existing as a top apex predator. And humans being this like ruthlessly efficient um, and invasive really species that came out of Africa, um, or at least into the greater Eurasia area, um, interacted with these animals and there was just competition and instead of wolves either had to you know go extinct which probably wouldn't have been the case but their population would have dwindled and humans just being what we are kind of just dominate the earth wherever we go wolves just kind of 
formed an ecological niche and that's what the dog is and it's just they learn to live alongside humans and they learn to scavenge instead of hunt um or for the most part dogs can still hunt um but wolves would start scavenging human camps and they would start um becoming or so the, the more docile wolves would have more of a predisposition to hang around people more whereas like the more aggressive or fearful ones would have run away so over the millennia these dogs that were allowed to stay around human camps that obviously weren't um killed by the humans or at least maybe after a while people started to name the dogs like oh that's old white fang that comes near here once in a while he's nice enough and they let them stay over like millennia of uh natural selection and in some cases artificial selection because there's other theories that humans may have been adopting wolf pups, which isn't as likely, but um, we can't say for sure how it happened all over the old world. Um, but anyway, wolves kind of adapted to life around humans, and the dog is the natural um, evolutionary niche that came out of that um, scavenging behavior of wolves. So I suppose you couldn't say exactly when this happened. Was it 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago? And it probably happened in more than one place as well. Absolutely. Um, so interestingly, we have uh, the the first genetic date we know of, like, this is officially a dog, is around 15,000 years ago in East Asia. And we know that based on just genetic samples that have been taken all over the world, we know that probably what we know as a dog now in the modern world was there and present around 15,000 years ago. However, there is... Um, there's very morphological and evolutionary differences between a dog skull and a wolf skull. So when archaeologists find this, um, at a certain point, we see just a myriad of wolf skulls in the record. And then we see at around 10 to 15,000 years ago, dog skulls everywhere. But the question is, where does this like morph start? And we start to see this trend in like, uh, it's called domestication syndrome where like a wolf skull is much longer. It starts to become shortened and more stocky when it becomes a domestic animal. And you can see that in sheep and goats and cows and all those things. It becomes um, cuter, in other words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a form of neoteny, actually, um, which is scientifically meaning that you have cute traits. Um, but, yeah, so we start to see this shift towards uh, smaller, more domestic um, wolf skulls around 33,000 years ago, I think is the oldest one. And that's in, uh, I want to say, the Altai Mountains in Russia, there's three old sites. Some are 33,000, some are 30,000. And there's some in the Siberian uh, mountains of the Altai Mountains, I should say, which is in uh, the mm-hmm. Russian Siberia. And then there's also some in uh, Belgium and Goyette Cave. And I believe there's some in Germany. And we see these all over. Um, but the very first dog that we know that was buried with a human uh, was around 14,000 years ago in uh, Germany. That's the Obercastle dog. And then, um, which I think you had shared on your um, Evolution Soup page as well. Um, yes. And uh, there's also another one, an Ein Malacha, or Ein Mahala, I can't remember how you say that, in Israel. And that was a woman buried with a puppy. Um, that was around 10,000 years ago. Um, but for sure, we know dogs were in existence living with people at least 15,000 years ago. Wow. That's so yeah. interesting. Um, yeah. David, well, here on Talk Police, we talk about beliefs obviously especially religious beliefs and why people believe things the way they do Uh, animals appear in religious mythology all throughout the ages and dogs seem to have a special place alongside humans in those myths isn't that right Mm -hmm. i I would say so all over the world um i'm I'm thinking of uh, lycanthropy and and werewolves at least yeah uh so one thing that i've always found fascinating with that 
is um i mean we have like at least in the western canon we have like this sense of the big bad wolf and obviously we hunted them almost to extinction in a certain part that they're um, a nuisance and a, and a, a fearful animal to humans but we have things like the werewolf or we have like um obviously like fenrir is supposed to be a very scary wolf that um lives with odin in the afterlife and things like that um or lives in valhalla or one of those astral planes i can't actually quite remember (laughs) so we have all these um, fearful wolves and i think part of what that is comes from the evolutionary standpoint of uh humans are persistence hunters and which means that we i mean we don't have like the jaws of a bear or a wolf and we don't run as fast as a cheetah but what we do is we chase an animal and we sweat to like let our excess heat out um, which is also why we're hairless and we don't have to stop to pant, and we just keep chasing and chasing until that uh, large ungulate, say like a deer, becomes exhausted and collapses, and then we get to the carcass. However, wolves do a similar thing. They don't sweat, they pant, but they're very persistent hunters. They chase and chase and chase, and like will stop and keep going. And in, I think in human evolution, that's a very like in like seated thing in our minds that like wolves are it's terrifying because they do something similar to us. So all over the world, you start to see these, uh, like, beliefs and religions sometimes about dogs and wolves being, like, a, a fearful creature. And I think it comes from that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Well, so sort of a perceived uh, kinship right from the get-go, really. Yeah, like, a, like an ancient rivalry, I would say. Yeah. And I always think of the um, the many-headed dog uh, Cerebus, is it, in the in the Greek myths? Yeah, uh, so Cerebus um, was the, the three-headed dog in Greek and Roman mythology. I think he had a different name in Roman, I can't quite remember. But um, he uh, he guarded the underworld, or, or Tartarus in the, in the Greek world, um, from people escaping so he would guard the river um and he wouldn't let people like their souls leave the afterlife um the aztecs had a similar belief that there was a dog that led you to the afterlife um many native americans believed the same um the north american or north alaskan inuit also believed that the sea goddess lived underwater and was guarded by a dog um so there's anubis as well was the um the egyptian god of i don't think he's the god of death but he was had something to do with the underworld or the afterlife. Mm. And um, he was a golden-headed jackal, but some people believe he was also a wolf or a dog, uh, depending on the depiction. And either way, there was some canid that had something to do with the afterlife. And we see this all over the world. And in Norse mythology, Fenrir is supposed to swallow the world during Ragnarok. So it's like a just super interesting cross-cultural connection there with dogs being something associated with the afterlife. Yeah, and I remember when you were on the Seven Ages podcast, they mentioned yeah. about the Christian saints that were depicted with the heads of dogs back in the Middle Ages. What was that all about? Do you know? Um, I actually can't recall what exactly that was about, um, but there there are many Christian saints that had dog heads, and that's like a similar thing um, around the world. It just 
there's just something in human like culture that associates dogs with the afterlife and i i the the christian faith either picked that up from other pagan beliefs and things like that like have they done in the past or it's just something that um people at, in the past had associated with death and it just meant that at the time you know wow well, yeah. you and your colleagues have cataloged hundreds of dog burials across the United States, especially, I think it's the Southeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes dogs are buried along with humans, as you said, but more often just on their own. Um, and as you said, this probably has something to do with the afterlife, I would guess. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so that's a question I get quite often. Um, and it's like, why are these dogs buried with people? And um, the question is, like, without a time machine or the TARDIS, like, we can't find out, you know? So... Um, we do know that people were buried with their dogs and of any animal that humans are buried with dogs are the most common. Like there might be towards like the earlier end of history or the later end of history where we are, there might be like people buried with horses and hamsters and things like that. But back in the day, it was mostly dogs. Um, and the question I get a lot is like, was the dog sacrificed? And Without direct evidence on the bones for, like, cut marks of butchery, like, we can't necessarily tell. If, if the animal bled out from, like, having its, like, throat slit or just some kind of sacrificial action, we can't necessarily tell unless it was, like, a huge trauma pa- uh, paleopathologically. Um, but we can definitely tell that if it was a puppy, it probably was killed um, to live or to be with the human in the afterlife in some kind of way like that. And I think that's pretty fascinating um, that, like, people were being buried and intentionally, which is a human milestone in itself to bury somebody with cultural artifacts and to put them in the ground in a certain way um, to preserve them or to prepare them for the afterlife and that they willingly sacrificed the dog to put them with them or a puppy so that they could be in the afterlife. That's a very powerful thing to me. I mean, it makes sense because uh, in, in everyday life, the dog is, is uh, a companion and a protector. So, it would make sense that they would choose their dog, perhaps their pet, um, who's protected them, guided them, helped them in yeah. this life, to bring them over to the next life. Because um, I, I know it's it's either, I think you've said before, um, that dogs are, in the afterlife, they're either spiritual protectors, or they will, in, the, in, in a couple of cases, they will block a soul trying to get to the afterlife. So like a guard yeah. dog. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't want to misquote and say it was the Aztecs, but there was some Mesoamerican uh, religion that believed that uh, there was a dog that judged you when you went to the afterlife, um, kind of like Cerebus, or that just sat in the after- the entranceway to it. Um, and wow. if it liked you or disliked you, it would like determine how you like, you know fared in the afterlife. And obviously, like if a dog doesn't like somebody, they might not be a great person. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's something like that. Um, I think that answers your question, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm sure that those Native American cultures had some strong beliefs surrounding wolves and dogs. Uh, am I right in saying that? Or? Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite ones, which is uh, kind of quite poetic, the um, the Iroquois, and I believe it was directly the Seneca um, Iroquois of Western New York, um, believed that you know during like creation or like the, the time when the world was created, that humans and dogs, or actually humans were given humanity and made humans so the other animals were made into animals but uh the creators of the gods didn't know where to put dogs they um they lost their chance to be human because they were promiscuous and and filthy i think is what the quote said but like uh they weren't able to be animals and they were stuck 
between like humans and animal and humans kind of took pity on them and decided that there's no place for this animal to go. So they took them in and that's why they live with us. And in exchange, if you show a dog great love or, um, you know, care for it, well, you'll be given good magic or good like karma in a sense, which is called arenda. And if you were to mistreat the dog or treat it in the wrong way or disrespectfully, you would get bad magic, which the way I interpret it was like some kind of karma system. Um, which was they actually think that uh, oh this this dog here has a human soul you know and perhaps it's because you know when you look in a dog's eyes it does look like it's it's almost human you know yeah um, the the Inuit as well many tribes um, and, and groups believed that um, once you gave something a name it had a soul and they had obviously the, the sled dog culture and most of their dogs were, were forced to be sled dogs their whole lives and worked and slept outside they were given scraps. Uh, but one dog was allowed to live with the family, and the dog that was allowed to live with the family was treated like you know, like a child, like like we would in Western society. Um, and it was given a name, and therefore it had a soul. Um, so yeah, there's there's something there with um, which I can get into later. When you look at a dog, there's a very like evolutionary connection we have with them, like face wise, uh, and how we like recognize like humanity in a sense. And that leads very well to my next question, which is about evolution, which uh, we talk about quite a bit on Talk Beliefs, or especially about the beliefs surrounding evolution. Um, now, I know, David, like me, you know the importance of an evolutionary science and that there is a pushback from creationists and those who just won't accept that mountain of evidence for evolution. So you've written papers, uh, blogs, you have your Ethnosynology Instagram account, you've done a few videos. What sort of pushback have you received from people who are skeptical of science and evolutionary science in particular? Um, one thing that I've gotten before, uh, and I remember like this standing out to me when um, I think I was even in high school when I got this before too, because I was always just obsessed with archaeology. Um, there was a mammoth that was found uh, in the backyard of someone's home in, in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, I was explaining that to somebody when I was in college and that the mammoth was from 11,000, 10,000 years ago. Uh, but somebody was like, well, the world's only 6,000, you know, and like, and something like that. <laughs> yeah. And um, I never like stomp on those beliefs because it's the, their beliefs. I respect that. But like, I just, as a scientist, try to explain it in the most logical and, you know, factual way that I can, because that's just how I perceive the world and to not just accept it because of what's written in a, a book is a little odd to me, but um, yeah, I, I've had that before, and that was a, a mammoth, but also telling people that dogs have been around for 33 to 15,000 years is, is a big number for some people, oh, yeah. um, and dogs are a touchy subject, too, because like I've met many creationists that love their dogs and like uh, totally are like locked in when I give these lectures, and like if I'll give those dates and, and say these things like evolution and whatnot, like I don't, I, when I'm up on stage, like I can't tell if they're like mentally checking out or not and things like that. But, um, I've had, had people talk to me about that and I just have to explain, I had someone argue with carbon dating with me at one point too. Um, oh, and nice. that it's, they don't like necessarily accept it. And I, I, if you don't accept it, um, that's where I kind of draw a problem. But if you don't understand it, then I'm more than happy to explain it. Um, and because I didn't understand it for the longest, it's a complicated process, but, um, to just outright, say no um is a little like off to me um and i definitely uh on the other hand though when i explain these the history of dogs and the evolution of dogs 
then the overwhelming evidence um, that Darwin was like, if anyone's watching who's read The Origin of Species, you'll know he was obsessed with domestic animals and plants. Pigeons especially, yeah. Especially <laughs> pigeons. The whole book I probably says pigeon more than like the word the. But um, he finds dogs fascinating, and he wrote a book, I think, on the domestic animals or something like that. And I um, can't remember the exact title. But he was fascinated by dogs. But anyway, back to what I was saying. When I explain this, the historical and evolutionary process behind dogs and just like bombard with the overwhelming evidence of how they're like living evolutionary beings, um, like I, I, I notice that some people like will give like a, a nod of like, huh, in, in the audience. And like, I, I enjoy that because to me, that means I'm, I'm teaching, you know, but um, in those moments, I can see people being like, that does make sense. And when I get that across in, in a crowd, like, like I said, I, I feel good because I'm teaching, but also like I might be using practical evidence that people can tangibly see and literally feel through like chemical reactions when they interact with dogs that like, okay, evolution might be something I understand now. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, that, that to me is what it's all about. <laughs> and what about yeah. transitional fossils? Does that come into it? Transitional fossils relating to wolves and dogs? Does that ever come <laughs> into your... Um, not since I've studied the dogs, um, but I've definitely had some interesting talks about the Cambrian explosion and, and transitional fossils and like, how, how does that work? You know, if they just like, appear, there's no transitional fossils and things like that. But uh, again, when I was giving the talk a few weeks ago, I remember seeing, actually, uh, this one a few months ago, um, talking about the transitional fossils. And I literally pulled out a skull of a wolf and a skull of a dog. It was explaining how that works like on the screen it wasn't like a, a physical one um what the differences are and when i explain that you know this is a wolf and this is a dog and have just spent 40 minutes explaining that they're the same species the dogs are just an evolved subspecies of the dog and then showing how that skull transitions to a smaller thing makes sense and it's a gradual process that happened and in the sense of you know grand evolution dog domestication was like super quick um, but that's what the process of evolution is. It's just accelerated evolution uh, or domestication is accelerated evolution through artificial selection. Um, but yeah, it's showing that just tangible evidence where they can go see a dog and go see a, a wolf at the zoo. It's there. The evidence is there. And uh, I think it's a very tangible hands-on science, uh, scientific fact that they can, they can see and can't really refute. Okay, um, I just got to ask you, David, what did you think of the recent film Alpha? Now, this was a movie that came out last year, and it depicted the beginning of the domestication of wolves, uh, revolving around the relationship between a wolf and a young hunter in the Upper Paleolithic Age, around 20,000 years ago, thereabouts. So do you think they got it basically right or wrong? or? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question, because I had been punked about this movie for a while and i was like oh man it's gonna suck like it's gonna be like 10,000 bc all over again uh and then i went it no offense to 10,000 bc fans but i went well, worse one million years bc <laughs> yeah. you ever seen that film <laughs> uh no i haven't seen that one uh, so I, I went in expecting to hate alpha and i even posted on my facebook like is watching alpha and i was like ready to be disappointed and i left the theater like i got popcorn and a coke doing the american thing and i was like oh that's gonna be good and I loved it. <laughs> um, it was their theories on evolution. Like I wouldn't say they presented as th or theories on domestication. I should say they didn't present as scientific fact. It was just the uh, a joyful story of man and his best friend surviving the elements. Um, it was like a very P 
PG Revenant. Um, but yeah, it it was great. Like they the costume design was fantastic. Um, they got uh, Salutrian culture down pretty well. How people would have lived in the Ice Age. There's even a scene where a guy was like eating ants off of his hand when they were hunting, which I loved because hunter gatherers wouldn't have just been focusing on hunting a mammoth or a bison. They would have eaten whatever they could find. Um, and they like little details like that they put in there. And the way the boy was hunting with the dog and how he would wound an animal, but the dog would run and chase it, or the wolf dog, I should say, that was accurate. And like they did a great job. Uh, whoever trained the wolf to be an actor was fantastic. Um, there were some they did things, their they did their research on this one apparently. Then um, yeah, obviously, and I loved to meet the archaeologist who was their consultant because he did a great job getting his point across. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say it's like don't watch that movie and say oh that's how it happened, but it's definitely. If you want to get like a mental picture of what was going on back then, that's a good start. Yeah, I love the film as well. Um, yeah. I've actually ordered it, so I'm, I'm waiting that to <laughs> arrive, and I'm going to watch that and all the making ofs and everything all over good. again. Okay, yeah, um, David, that was really great, really fascinating. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. It was certainly a very different subject for me, and hopefully the viewers got a kick out of this. Um, it's such an interesting topic since pretty much everyone can relate to owning a dog or yeah. knowing somebody who owns a dog. So um, I guess the last thing I have to say is, is what is next for you? Are there any projects you can tell us about? So I have the, the Instagram.com slash ethnosynology or the, like the at ethnosynology is the handle. Um, I also am starting a YouTube channel called How and Why Productions, and that's how with an E. Um, I have one test video on there, but I'll eventually be uploading onto there. That'll be like the, the sister channel to my Instagram. Um, I was doing a talk uh, last week um, in, uh, where was it? Augusta, at Augusta University. I gave one last year at uh, the University of Colorado, or University, Colorado State University. There we go, in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, yeah, and I, I plan to do more. I got the TED video coming up, and then um, I'm doing another talk in Nashville in a couple months. Um, I'll email you when those details come up. Anybody that wants to reach out and ask questions, like I'm always happy to answer my emails on the Instagram. I'm sure Mark can uh, put them out there. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. If people want to get in touch, so they probably will after this one, ask questions, relate some stories. So that's fine for them to contact you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and don't bombard, but yeah, I, I can get to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Um, I will leave links to your ethnosynology website and Instagram in the description below. And other than that, I just like to say, David Hell, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it.